Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should be aware that this broadcast contains details of people who have passed on. Heads up, this episode also contains discussions of racism, intergenerational trauma, and police brutality. If this brings anything to the surface for you, or if you just need to talk to someone, you can always call Lifeline on 13 11 14. We've also put some additional resources in the show notes. Record Collections and Recollections, Out of the Box, with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. I'd like to start by acknowledging that this broadcast is coming to you from stolen Gadigal land. I pay my respects to Gadigal elders, past, present and future. Gadigal people have been sharing stories and songs on this land since the beginning of time and this always was, always will be Aboriginal land. You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI 94.5. I'm Danny Stewart filling in for Mia Hull. Each week on Out of the Box, our guest tells the story of their life through the songs that mean a lot to them. This week, we are privileged to be joined by proud Bunjalung activist, writer, and soon-to-be law graduate, Vanessa Turnbull-Roberts. Vanessa received the 2019 Young People's Human Rights Medal and a few months back was awarded FBI Radio's Smack of the Year in recognition of her ongoing work fighting for justice for First Nations peoples. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to Out of the Box. Thank you so much for having me. Before I do begin um, and we have a yarn, I'd also just like to um, acknowledge and pay my respects to the sacred land that we're meeting on. Um, I pay my respects to the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and acknowledge um, this place of resistance and fight. And in honour of um, receiving the Smack Award, um, fighting for that very same First Justice, very much the place of resistance and home has been here in Redfern. So um, I honour that, I honour this award and I'm really honoured to be here. You spent the first few years of your life on Gadigal land in Redfern, right near where we're recording today. And as you said, Redfern has long been a place of resilience and resistance for First Nations people. What was it like to grow up in that community? Um, very much for me growing up here in Redfern and remembering the stories of, of, of um, my, my sacred father um, was the stories of Redfern being simply that place of resistance, of strength and of fight. Um, they don't call Sydney the big smoke for no reason. They call it the big smoke because very much the people from the north coast and the south coast were communicating through smoking signals of what Redfern is and what Redfern and what's actually happening in Redfern, which was very much those yarns of invasion. And when European invasion started taking place here in Redfern, the people from the south coast sent smoke signals to the north coast. So this is the Yuan countries to the Bunjalang and north coast countries up top and said, actually, something's happening in Redfern and this is not good. We know it's not good. We feel it's not good. Something's going on. And so what I love about Redfern not only in a contemporary sense being the middle point for movement and coming together before whether it's you're coming to the train station to get to Central or, or Newtown or head up to the coast, um, it's still today from traditionally a place where we have come to meet and create movement when you have been disconnected from 
whether it's your homelands, whether it's you've been pushed out of a traditional country, um, or simply you're feeling lost, it's a place of connecting. And so for me, um, we lived in Walker Street, um, just in Redfern. My beautiful nan, Hazel Roberts, lived in Mary Street, um, just down in Redfern, housing flats down there. Um, and so growing up for those first few years in Walker Street, um, my father worked on the land council out here and he had made the decision with my mum, who we met in Walker Street, they were neighbours first, um, he made the decision that Redfern was very much turning into a place of increased police harm. My father, being a black, proud, bunjalung man, um, was someone also subjected to that policing. Um, he would tell me stories about being taken to Redfern Police Station and um, the officers in there putting their hands up my father's nose and dragging him out and saying, look at this coon, look at this black coon, um, and commentary. And I think for my father, because my mother and my father had my um, older brother, Stephen, and then when I was born, something hit my father where he was like, my little daughter is just not a space where I want my daughter to go up at the moment. He was genuinely really fearful, one of his life, two of my brothers and three of my life. And so we spent um, the first few years here in Redfern with, with Nan and Pop and our uncles and then we moved on to um, an area called um, Bilga Crescent, which is located just near La Perouse, um, which I spent pretty much, I remember being my childhood memories with the community there, um, going to Kajaga, um, a beautiful aunties and uncles and again also a place of, of resistance and fight with its own stories um, which the traditional people will share um, of that country and it's something where I've had the joy of being raised around community and being raised with our aunties and our uncles um, in a place where our traditional homeland is up on the north coast of New South Wales and knowing those stories and those song lines and just seeing the way these two places down here have also been a part of who I am and my home as well. Um, and it's very much the reason why I dedicate my life to to fighting against the injustices, but not necessarily in a working capacity, not necessarily in I'm this activist and I'm this and I'm that, just very much in the capacity of when you're growing up black in this country, you've seen the way your parents have been treated, you see the way your grandparents have been treated, um, you see the way you're being treated and then you see the way your children are going to be treated and your nieces and your nephews. Um, something hits you where it says you have no choice but to speak up and you have no choice but to understand what's going on. You started young. I know your dad would take you along to rallies from a very early age. What's your first memory of a protest? Um, so my first memory is in 2000, which was the um, walk, and then I say in inverted commas, walk for reconciliation. Across the Harbour Bridge. Across the Harbour yeah. Bridge. And I was actually beside my pop, um, Pop Colin Roberts, and um, with my with my father. And I remember being on his shoulders and seeing all these people and seeing just how busy this space is. I remember feeling so liberated with my father and my pop. Um, and all of the communities that came together to say, you know what, we want to march for reconciliation and we want to march to come together and we want to march to see justice um, for, for Black Lives lands um, and bodies here in this moment. But the sad reality is, upon reflection, it was just a moment. It wasn't, it wasn't something that created critical movement for white people to step up and say, shit, like, what are we doing wrong? 
Um, yeah. And that's the reality. But that's where it started for me. And then it was very much going to the invasion day um, marches and protests. And I'd be a young person just seeing all these incredible people that I looked up to. Um, in particular, I remember being a young kid um, looking up to, you know, you see her at rallies today. She's an incredible poet, but Annie Lizzie Jarrett. And I just remember thinking, my goodness, like, that is another black woman up there in that space and she's speaking and looking at my dad and being like, dad, like, why are we always at these events? Unfortunately, because there's always an injustice, but just being so inspired by the way these people could really call in a crowd. Um, and yeah, just being really inspired by the collective action. Sounds like you were surrounded by strength and love in those first few years and you've brought in a song that reminds you of your dad. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, sure. Um, one song that my father and I always shared was My Girl um, by The Temptations and it's very close to my heart because when I did run back home when I was 18, um, that was a song that we still played to, this, to the day that he passed away. Here it is, The Temptations, My Girl. listening to 
out of the box on FBI 94.5. I'm Danny Stewart and we're chatting with proud Bundjalung activist, writer and law student Vanessa Turnbull-Roberts. We talked about your early years growing up between Gadigal and Bidjigal country where you were surrounded by the love and strength of your family and community. Let's fast forward now to 2008, the year that then Prime Minister Kevin Rudd apologised to First Nations peoples for the stolen generations. What he apologised for was an historical event, something that ended in 1967. He said in his famous speech that the apology was about righting the wrongs of the past, But that very same year, the cops and caseworkers showed up at your place late one night and took you away from the care of your dad in a scene reminiscent of those Kevin Rudd was apologizing for. What do you remember about that night? It was in the middle of the night. I was simply just a kid about to close my eyes, about to go to bed. Um, And my father gets out on the balcony and he yells out, Bub. I'm so sorry, but they're coming. And I was like thinking, who's coming, Dad? Who's coming to our house? And he said, Bob, I'm so sorry. Just pack what you can. And my father was talking as if he knew this. He knew this so well. And I was like, who's coming? And I remember the, instantly what my body felt that night. I felt terrified. Um, I then looked out to the window and I see the red and blue lights. Red and blue lights and these cars that literally sound like they are doing burnouts down our street and I'm thinking that's how someone would respond as if there's a murder that's taken place as if something's gone on and there is a legitimate emergency situation Um, until I heard knock knock at the door and very much my father's name you need to open this door now or else police are going to come in and barge down this door and my father with no harm no force opened up the door and the caseworker said to said to my father and I, Vanessa, I hug your father one last time. You're coming with us. Um, and it was in these moments that for probably the second time in my life that I've ever seen my father cry. He cried when my nan passed away. Um, he cries. He cried at her being gone. And then I remember that night that I was stolen, my father's tears falling down my shoulders as we were in that moment hugging each other with me feeling very confused and not sure what is going on. Um, I was t- I was 10 and a half at the time mm-hmm. and I was very conscious of what was happening. This wasn't something that happened at birth. This wasn't something that happened at 16 or 17 where I could run away. This happened when I was 10 and a half and I had full consciousness of what was happening, full memory and full trauma inflicted in that moment that the department, the, the department decided to come and steal me from my father in the middle of the night. Um, this caseworker, followed by over 12 to 15 different police officers from our housing flat all the way down to the little park that we have at the front, all the way to the vehicle of the caseworker's car, which is where I was going to be taken to. Police walked in as I was hugging my father. To them, it was too long. They grabbed my arms from hugging my father. They put my hands behind my back and they walked me to that caseworker's car. And that night, I remember clear as day, because even neighbours were looking at, like, what is going on? What is going on with, with Vanessa and what's going on with um, with, with Albie, my, my father's name, with the, my father's name? And everyone was confused because if you knew the relationship that I had with my father, 
he protected me like nothing else. Were there times that could have been better? Yeah, there were times that could have been better. But when we are struggling in this world and we have parents that need assistance, we don't respond with punitive measures. We don't respond with stealing these children. Mm. We don't respond with inflicting more trauma. And you said that your your dad knew what was happening and this is something that your parents had always feared, right? Because since the moment you were born, you had been profiled by the state at the hospital. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. So when, and it still happens today, but when my mother was pregnant with me, um, obviously it was notified that I'm Indigenous um, and immediately caseworkers began to be at my mother's um my mother's birthing table pretty much um and that targeting that constantly having the department do the check-ins on us it was almost like they were waiting for the perfect time to strike or the perfect time to catch my family out um and it was the moment i was born the mo- usually the moment children are born they're welcomed by family community and celebrations well not for black kids here in this country not for not for black families here in this country. You're welcomed by caseworkers. You're welcomed by the state and the health department notifying that you're an Indigenous baby about to be born and you're automatically seen as a deficit instead of a strength, instead of how can we liberate, how can we make sure that you're protected from that department, that caseworker, that threatening social worker. There are Aboriginal mothers that are having babies right now who already have social workers on the back yeah, there might be struggles of addiction. Yeah, there might be struggles of um, social social detriments that are going on. But that does not mean you remove that child. It means you, you look at the strengths of that family. You look at mm. the strengths of the mother. You look at, okay, well, where does this intergenerational trauma come from, from mother or father or auntie or uncle or whom, and how can we actually provide wraparound support to cater to this, this parent, and this child without further inflicting more trauma. Um, unfortunately, you know, we have the the government um, that just announced in 2018, it removed um, consent for forced adoption. So they amended the Adoption Act um, and the Children and Young Persons Care Protection Act. Mm-hmm. If you've been removed um, at care and you're under 12 months, you can then be placed under force, you can then be placed into adoption um, even if your parents do not consent to that, um, under the discretion of the Supreme Court. And that is that is a horrific power that the courts have now in determining where black children belong. Because we did have Kevin Rudd give his apology to the stolen generation survivors saying we need to rewrite our wrongs. But then we have the government today allowing adoption to take place even without parental consent. How common are stories like yours? Very common. Very yeah. common. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I was, I was, I don't even want to say, I was stolen at 10 and a half. That's late. That's a, that's a late removal. Mm. Um, they're targeting children, they're targeting infants. Um, and they're looking for, for, I guess, the easier children to remove in that case, the easier families that, um, can have their children, um, removed from, from statutory out of home care systems and placed into care. And, uh, this story is one where we're seeing now a higher number of removals take place than we ever had before. So it's, it's gone up since it's gone the apology. Up. It's gone. It's and it's tripled since the stolen generation. 
We'll talk about what happened next in a minute, but first you've brought in a track by Uncle Archie Roach to speak to this horrific night Mm -hmm. in your life. Can you tell us a bit about this song? Yeah. um, This this song very much um, is is so close to home with with, um, a lot of other Indigenous child movements and in particular my own, of course, Uncle Archie, sharing his experiences of what he went through but the story behind this song actually is I was about 15 or 16 or even older I'm I'm a bit blurred with the age but I was in Kulin Nation so Melbourne um Thelma Plum had just finished performing um and I was with my my really dear friend who is his family and, and so close to my my heart um and I hadn't heard Uncle Archie before I hadn't heard his music before I didn't know who this person was and Uncle Archie got up on stage after the film performed and he started singing um, Put the Children Away. And I don't know if you've ever been in a space where someone starts articulating words and you've never spoken the words before but your body feels and you know exactly what's being said and someone just puts it together and in the click of a button, it makes sense. And so when I heard Uncle Archie's song, um, They Took the Children Away, it was very much like, I actually need to get up because I'm being triggered right now. My body's being like, what's going on? What's, what's happening? His his words are making so much sense to what I'm feeling. Um, that trigger and that song, that really was a moment for me when I was younger. Well, let's whack it on. This is Uncle Archie Roach with Took the Children Away. This story's right, this story's true. I would not tell lies to you like the promise said. They did not keep And how they fenced us in like sheep Said to us, come take care of him Set us up on mission land Told us to read, to write and pray Then they took the children away Took the children away the children away Snatched from their mother's breast Said this is for the best Took them away Welcome and the holy name Said you've got to understand We'll give to them What you can't give Teach them how to really live Teach them how to live their sin Humiliated them instead Taught them that and taught them this And others taught them prejudice Took the children away The children away Breaking our mother's heart Caring us all about took them away One dark day on Framling Hill Came and didn't give a damn My mother cried Go get their dead He came running Fighting me Mother's tears Were falling down Dad shaped up and stood his ground, he said, you 
was Took the Children Away by Uncle Archie Roach, written in 1988 about Uncle Archie's own experience of being stolen from the care of his family decades earlier. When that track was released, it helped start a reckoning in white Australia about this country's horrific history of forcibly removing Aboriginal children from their family, community and culture. Today, The Stolen Generations is spoken about as an act of the past, but it never stopped. And we're joined on Out of the Box today by proud Bunjalung woman, Vanessa Turnbull-Roberts, who was taken from the care of her family by caseworkers on falsified allegations of neglect. And this didn't happen in the mid 20th century, but in 2008, the same year as Kevin Rudd's apology, Nessa, after the cops and the caseworker showed up that night and took you away, where did they take you? 
Um, so they took me into emergency um, accommodation, which is it's weird because when you think of the the term emergency, you would think there needs to be a, an emergency situation that you're putting someone in into a, in I guess into the the care of a crisis circumstance. Um, and so the night that I was removed, I was placed into emergency accommodation um, or emergency foster care, um, which tends to happen with children that are removed um, when you haven't been like a part of the process of that removal taking place. So it's when it's an emergency decision that's made on the basis of a caseworker, um, I guess in this case statutory body, the statutory body of um, the department deciding that they need to undertake an emergency removal, um, which did not need to happen. Um, it did not need to happen at all, um, and especially in the middle of the night. Um, and then I was placed into a temporary accommodation, um, which is where your families are in. It's kind of like the middle part where, you know, your families are going to court, you're going to court, and they're trying to decide, well, what's in the best interest of a child for that removal? Um, in particular with that process, when a First Nations child is removed, you need to look at members of that child's family, aunties, uncles. That's the kinship care plan that they're supposed to follow, right? Yeah, so it's it's um, it's legally known as the Aboriginal Placement Principle mm-hmm. um, and the Aboriginal Placement Principle is looking at alternative Aboriginal placements. Um, in my case, I wasn't placed with any First Nations families. In fact, I remember there being dialogue about wanting to send me to the Northern Territory um, because that's where, and I say a bit of comment, the Indigenous families are. Um, and it was horrendous because my family were more than happy to take me in, aunties, uncles, community, yeah. and put their hand up. But it was the resistance of the department that weren't allowing that to happen. Um, again, it was it was fueled by racism. It was fueled by, okay, if Vanessa's father can't look after her, well, what makes, what makes anyone think that it can be her aunties, her uncles, community or family? Um, take her in and so my family in this mist are, are still fighting for for me to be taken back home did they know where you were no no so the only way I could contact my family was my father coming to visit me at school because he wanted to make sure I was safe so he would come down and he would check on me and he'd be like Bob are you okay um, and he would check literally check my body for bruises to make sure I wasn't being hurt um, don't get me wrong there were homes where some people were, were good and they were good people, um, and they are people that, as a kid in care, I'll acknowledge them for their for their good hearts in wanting to actually provide to children in out of home care because they genuinely do. But on the other token, there were families where it was abusive, where it wasn't safe, where it wasn't a space that I actually needed to be or should have been placed in the first place, um, which took a fight for me to actually say I'm not safe in these places and I need to go. Um, and then you just go to the next home, the next home, the next home. Yeah. Well, we know that young people in the out-of-home care system are extremely vulnerable. A new report came out last week from the AFP's own data, which said that young people aged 13 to 17 in the out-of-home care system make up less than 1% of the youth population, but they make up 70% of missing person cases when it comes to young people. So you said you ran away. I was wondering, did anyone ever check up on you, check in, say, how are you going? Are you okay? The thing about um, the statutory out-of-home care system is when you do hit 18, it's almost like this expectation that, yep, you're fine, you're good, make your own decision. Um, I 
have not been contacted by the Department of Communities and Justice. Um, I have reached out to the Department of Communities and Justice and requested support. Um, I've requested support for therapeutic intervention to make sure that I am able to work with the harm that they actually perpetrated and inflicted on me as a young person. Um, I've requested an apology from the Department of Communities and Justice for the trauma they put through my parents. Um, and I've requested that I be supported. Um, that was only recently. When I was 18, I was not contacted on my whereabouts and that report coming out from the AFP does not surprise me one bit because where are our children going? Mm. Where are they going once they hit past 18? Well, is there any research or data that shows where kids from the system end up? Do we know, for example, how many end up incarcerated? We do know that a lot of our children do end up incarcerated. Um, what tends to happen is... Um, a young person is picked up on the street, whether it's for stealing food or um, they're racially profiled by police officers. They then get, you know, whether it's illegally strip searched or assaulted, they then get taken to the police station. They may or may not get let off with a warning. Usually second time around, there's definitely no warning. They're taken to the criminal justice system. And before you know it, they're before a magistrate and the magistrate says, oh, you know what, you actually don't have a home address to put down. You're at risk. You, we can't grant you bail. But no one looks at, okay, the very reason why this young person doesn't have a home address is because, one, the social worker didn't turn up to say they're actually in statutory out-of-home care. Two, they were removed by statutory out-of-home care and they don't have an address to put down. And three, the best solution to that is, well, let's just put them in jail where the majority of children, young people are held on remand, not necessarily convicted of the supposed crime that they've committed. And before you know it, it's that cycle of recidivism and it's not yeah. by choice. It's by the system placing them that is designed to keep them there. Yeah, yeah. So the victim of a system that is set up to institutionalise mm. young First Nations people mm -hmm. and it's just, yeah, as you say, a cycle. Um, well, thank you for sharing your story of survival of the out-of-home care system with us. You've brought in a song that is all about survival. It's one from J. Cole and it even features a lyric about not being like supposed to survive to a certain age. Can you tell us a little bit about this selection that you've brought in? <laughs> um, I really appreciate um the way J. Cole is really poetic in, in his lyrics and, you know, the reality here in Australia is um, there is a massive health inequity. Um, you know, J. Cole, I thought, I'm probably going to get this quote wrong, but he says, um, 1985, we're alive, 33 years, damn, I'm grateful I survived. We wasn't supposed to get past 25. Um, jokes on you, explicit language, we're alive. <laughs> and I think... That this resonates with the struggle here that we have. We weren't supposed to survive the act of racial eugenics attempts to breed us out. Genocide. Um, genocide, rape our women, murder, use babies' heads as golf balls. Like this is the reality of, of, of this disgusting country. It's not the lucky country when you're black and you come from poverty or marginalisation here and that is the reality. And so that, when I listen to that song, I can't help but think, but the joke's on you because we have survived. Um, we have, we've got seeds all over the place and we're growing and we're growing. Don't get me wrong, there are there is a significant reality to the health injustice that we are facing. That is that is unquestionable. Um, but in terms of um, those lyrics, 
I just love that he just articulates so well that um, we're surviving and, you know, our black kids deserve every bit of the future, every bit because that we are the future. Yeah. Well, here it is. Uh, this is J. Cole with 1985 and there's a language warning on this track. <laughs> 1985, I arrived. 33 years, damn, I'm grateful I survived. We wasn't supposed to get past 25. Jokes on you, motherfucker, we alive. All these niggas popping now is young. Everybody say the music that they make is dumb. I remember I was 18. Money, pussy, parties, I was on the same thing. You gotta give a boy a chance to grow some. Everybody talking like they know something these days. Niggas acting woke, but they broke, um. I respect the struggle, but you all fronting these days. Man, they barely old enough to drive. To tell them what they should do, who the fuck am I? I heard one of them diss me, I'm surprised. I ain't tripping, listen good to my reply. Come here, little man, let me talk with you. See if I can paint for you the large picture. Congrats, cause you made it out your mama house. I hope you make enough to buy your mama house. I see your watch icy and your whip form. I got some good advice, never quit torn. Cause that's the way we eat here in this rap game. I'm fucking with your funky little rap name. I hear your music and I know that raps change. A bunch of folks will say that that's a bad thing. Cause everything's commercial when it's pop now. Trap drums is the shit that's hot now. See, I've been on a quest for the next wave. But never mind, that was just a segue. I must say, by your songs, I'm an impressed hey. But I love to see a black man get paid. And plus, you having fun and I respect that. But have you ever thought about your impact? These white kids love that you don't give a fuck Cause that's exactly what's expected when your skin black They wanna see you dab, they wanna see you pop a pill They wanna see you tatted from your face to your heels And somewhere deep down, fuck it, I gotta keep it real They wanna be black and think your song is how it feels So when you turn up, you see them turning up too You hit the next city, collect your money when it's due You get in that paper swimming and bitches, I don't blame you You ain't thinking about the people that's looking like me and you True, you got better shit to do You could've bought a crib with all that bread that you them blue I know you think this type of revenue is never ending But I wanna take a minute just to tell you that ain't true One day them kids is listening gonna grow up And get too old for that shit that made you blow up Now your show's looking light cause they don't show up Which unfortunately means the money slow up now you scrambling and hoping to get hot again But you forgot you only pop cause you was riding trends Now you old news and you going through regrets Cause you never bought that house but you got a Benz And a bunch of jewels and a bunch of shoes And a bunch of fake friends I ain't judging you I'm just telling you what's probably gonna happen When you rapping about the type of shit you rapping about It's a faster route to the bottom I wish you good luck I'm hoping for your sake that you ain't dumb as you look But if it's really true what people saying And you call yourself playing with my name then I really really know you fuck trust i'll be around forever cause my skills is tip top to any amateur niggas that want to get rock just remember what i told you when your shit flop in five years you're gonna be on loving hip-hop nigga You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI 94.5 with me, Danny Stewart, on DAB streaming or podcast. However you're listening, it's a pleasure to be with you. And we are so lucky to be joined by Proud Bunjalang, activist, writer, storyteller, and survivor of out-of-home care, Vanessa Turnbull-Roberts. 
So Nessa, age 18, you ran away from out of home care and you ended up in the law building at U- at the <laughs> University of New South Wales. What was it that made you want to study law? Um, it's so funny when you, when you put it like that, ran away and then ended up in the, in the law school building. <laughs> um, very much what, what motivated me to, to study law um, and social work at, at um, UNSW was very much understanding how disproportionately impacted um, my community was growing up by the law. Um, you know, we would have aunties and uncles um, just disappear for a period of time. I'd see brothers and sisters just suddenly not be in a local community or I'd walk down the street and I'd see a police officer just ripping into our community. Um, and so for me, understanding why people are doing things and their behaviour, whether you're an authoritarian or you're someone that's just down the street, um, I really wanted to have an understanding about what is going on, like what gives you that right to do that? Um, and, of course, my own experiences of, of being stolen, I, I completely understood um, as I as I continued to be more aware of what was happening to me, that my family were not represented appropriately, that my community were not represented appropriately when it came to the legal status of my removal. And so that motivated me to be like, you know what, I want to understand this legal system and this legal system because it's every odd against us. It's, it's, it's against us privately um, and it's against us publicly. Um, I'm talking from constitutional law to public law through to corporate and private and property law. Um, in every way, we are marginalised in that space. And so for me, I wanted to understand this legal system, never forget who I am in our cultural law, L-O-Y-E, but understand, you know what, I can go out there and I can I can, I can take this degree um, and I can use my personal, my professional experience to do the best I can um, with this knowledge of of their system um, that isn't built for us and and really give back to our children and our community. For those who aren't familiar, can you talk a little bit to the difference between law LAW and law LOI? Yeah, of course. Um, so law LAW is, is very much the white man's law. So it's very much the legal system that we have here that we're built on. Um, but LOIE is just the is not not even just it, it's the acknowledgement of our cultural law our cultural protocol understanding our boundaries through different song lines and jurisdictions understanding that you know there's particular policies and cultural protocols on different countries um what are what you know what occurs on one country might be different to another country um but here in australia we have state jurisdictions um that's law but in our cultural law loie there's different cultural protocols um, that that must be followed and upheld, and that's you know it's not state it's not divided by the way Australia has decided to break down its its map. It's actually broken down into our um, our different clans, our communities, and our different songlines. I mean, the University of New South Wales Law School isn't the most diverse place. Universities in general can be quite colonial spaces um, and particularly in the law school. There's a lot of people who come from very privileged backgrounds who have gone to the most elite schools Mm. in the city. How did you navigate being in that quite elitist space? I think COVID two years got is going to be through. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Um, You know, to be fair, um, it is a hard space to navigate. It's hard to navigate because when you're when you're a 
First Nations woman who is passionate about the injustices that are occurring because it's occurred to you and it's occurring to your your sisters and your brothers, you might not turn up to class because you have to organize a protest. You you are getting Gadigal people um, and Gadigal country ready to be like, you know what, we're about to get to the streets and we're about to demand justice. And they're in the room talking about our fight, but we're out on the streets with love fighting that fight. And so I found that really hard because I come into my lectures and, you know, these these white lecturers and the these white students are in class and they're talking about our struggle, they're talking about the disproportionate impact of the criminal justice system, they're talking about not having access to land property and land rights and their title and we're like, and I'm, I'm in the, I'm in the two worlds. I'm, I'm out yeah. in the streets. And You're I'm living like, it, literally. And I'm like, literally walking into these rooms, and I'm just like, these people actually have no, no clue about what's really going on. Like, you can read this textbook, and I can open up this thick criminal law textbook that's probably going to talk about the disproportionate rate of the criminal justice system. It's probably going to mention names that I already know of, mm. but do those communities and those families know that there's a bunch of law students benefiting off their struggle? What's being provided back to to community with that benefit? What are we giving back? How are we including the different diversity of who we are as First Nations people within these institutions? And I find that really hard to navigate with. Um, But I'm also really fortunate to have um, particular people, you know, throughout the law school who have backed me. Um, They've backed me. They've backed my fight. um, And they've been like, it's okay. Like that comes first. The the fight with community comes first and we'll find a way to navigate around you. And I've been very fortunate that because I've been vocal and I'm not afraid to be vocal about actually my priority is making sure that giving back to community um, and if community call on support, that we support where we can appropriately. Yeah. 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 Um, and you mentioned that having good people around you, uh, you did do your honours thesis on the oppression and implications of intergenerational trauma for First Nations people with a particular research focus on the amendments to the Children and Young Persons Care and Protection Act that you mentioned earlier. Uh, when researching and writing about something so traumatic and something that really hits home for you, how did you stay grounded and practice self-care? At that time, um, I was very fortunate enough to have an incredible professor and an incredible um, an incredible lecturer back me in, in doing my thesis. So Professor Michael Salter, who um, does a lot of work in complex trauma, and BJ Newton, who also does a lot of research work in statutory out-of-home care. Um, she's a proud Wiradjuri woman and he's a white dude. And... Uh, I was very, 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 very lucky to have these two powerful, powerful people in in so many different ways just back me and believe in the work that I was doing. And they were patient with me Um, and they were patient with acknowledging who I am, where I come from um, and making sure that when putting this piece of work together that it's not just done out of the sake of being done. It was done in a culturally appropriate way where the methods that I do use is decolonizing methods throughout my research paper. and that was very much well respected and taken by my peers, um, by the school, um, which doesn't happen very, very often for a lot of our mob that are out there trying to do the work um, and, and put that into research papers and things like that. So for me, I was very fortunate to have them. And I, I'm i not trying to be biased, but I'm, I'm, I have the best partner in the world. Um, <laughs> and I'm, I'm so in love and I'm so lucky and to have that support and to have that 
um, you know, my partner's obsessed with music and they, they just recently, not they just recently turned around, but last year when I was going into my final year of law school, they turned the music room that, that was meant to be a music room into a study room because they just, they, they want to make sure that I'm supported and I'm backed. And for me, that means everything. And I think when you find someone with genuine intentions and who cares, um, and when you find your corner and your people that say, I believe in you, um, and it requires a variety of people, whether that's professional, whether it's your partner, um, and it's including the d diverse range of people that are in your corner, um, remember who's in your corner and, and, and stick with those people, you know. Stick with the people who say, I'm in your corner even on the days that you're not in your own corner and remember that because they're the people you can always fall on. They're the people who are going to check in when you're not necessarily checking yourself um, and they're also the people that are going to honour when you I – I don't like the idea of self-care but honouring community care um, yeah. and that's a part of your community. Um, it's the people that are in your corner on the days you're not in your own corner. Yeah. It's been so beautiful to hear about how your connection to your community and your people has really gotten you through. And you've brought in a gorgeous track from Nairi <laughs> that really, really speaks to this. Um, it's called Fall Into My Arms. When do you <laughs> listen to this one? I listen to that song probably when I'm feeling really vulnerable. Um I love I love that song so much because it's just one of those songs that say, you know, when you decide, when you're ready, just fall into my arms and I'm going to be here. And I think in a world where, um, you know, we're so taught to just move on with things or we're so taught to get through things or in the times when we feel really alone that we don't just be like, I'm here with you. I'm, I'm here with you and my arms are open and I'm going to hold you and I'm going to hold you through it. I'm going to hold space um, and I'm going to let that person who's going through what they're going through just ride the wave and my arms are going to be here as a sounding board. And there's something so beautiful in physical touch and knowing that those arms are always available. And then in these words, I love it when she says, um, when you decide, um, these arms will wrap around you and you can just fall and you can let go and it's here and, for me, um, there, there's been some some scary times in my life where um, I didn't know what to do and I didn't know who, you know, not necessarily who, who I was in this world but that I didn't know if I wanted to be in this world. Um, and it was people opening up their arms and just saying, I'm here with you, um, I'm here with you and you decide you want to fall into your arms. So that was something very close to my heart. Yeah, it's such a strong message yeah. of love. Well, here it is. This is Nairi with Fall Into My Arms. 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 Fall into my Just 
You're listening to Out of the Box on FBI 94.5. I'm Danny Stewart and today we have proud Bundjalung woman Vanessa Turnbull-Roberts on the show. If you've been to a recent Black Lives Matter or Deaths in Custody rally, you might have seen Vanessa up the front surrounded by many other incredible First Nations women speaking their truth. Nessa, can you talk us through your process as an organiser and an activist? Yeah, of course. Um, very much with um, the the protest that um, I'm very, 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 very privileged to um, be asked to speak at or, you know, by taking the organising in um, is very much something that I don't take lightly. Um, it's a process that um it's not as soon as they happens we get up and we be vocal and we speak and we take charge it's actually the complete opposite it's it's actually waiting patiently um if you are asked to do it um if these families who have been directly impacted by that death in custody or by that impact have actually said we would like that um and you follow communities lead and you follow the families lead um it's not about getting out there and being this face of um, you're doing this, 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 this and sensationalising the movement. It's actually about saying this is the root cause, this is what we want to achieve and following the community and the family's wishes on what they want to do. And so when, you know, I do have the honour to speak at these protests or I've, I've been phone called by someone, um, as I mentioned, I don't take it lightly and it's something that I... I'm honouring firstly my own lineage, so that's my my sacred culture and I'm honouring my family's experience and I'm sitting with that. And it's very much a moment where I sit with my ancestors and I give it time to be like, is this something that I'm meant to do? Is this something that I have cultural consent to do? Um, is this something that my father would want me to do? Um, is this my place? Is it not my place? And I think knowing your place is really important and knowing your jurisdictions of what you do and don't have a right to speak on um, is super important as well. And so for, for me, um, particularly when we are demanding justice for black lives um, or we're going through colonial inquest or something going on, um, there's obviously a personal experience to it through um, own my own experience and personal experiences with these inquests um, with my own family. But of course, the fight with um, honouring, well, what's, what, what are we standing for here and what do the family want? And so that is very much a process where I sit with it um, and I honour that time and I stand, I stand with my ancestors and I just ask them, is this something that I'm meant to partake in or not? Uh, your work in activism was recognised by the Australian Human Rights Commission when you took out the Young People's Human Rights Medal in 2019. You brought your baby nephew up on stage with you when you accepted the award. Can you tell us a bit about your nephew and why you wanted him up there with you? Yeah, um, oh, my beautiful nephew, you know, for... For a lot of us in our communities, it's we're fighting to make sure the next generation is safe. We're fighting so our children can walk these streets with safety without being profiled or um, targeted by authorities because of their complexion and identity. And in particular, when at protest or on the streets, um, my priority is actually the children and elders. My priority is making sure our children aren't walking away traumatised even more from what we are coming together to stand and fight for. 
Um, if you look back on footage, if you look back on protests I've participated in, the first thing I'm looking at is children. Um, and it's making sure that they feel safe. And children tend to come to the front. So children creating a safe energy when we're in a safe space will tend to actually start walking out and feel safe in the in the front with us as organizers at the front. And I think that's one of the most beautiful things because it means all of these people and these bodies around are almost like a shield for these children because outside that shield, we have the people in blue, we have the police, we have the dangerous people. And so for these children, it's like some part of them says, I'm safer in this, I'm safer in this place, in the middle protected by the shield of people, our elders, our aunties, our uncles. Um, and it tends to be where ceremony has taken place or dance and the elders are that they feel the safest and so for me being the recipient of the the human rights um medal in 2019 I just wanted to show my nephew that this this is possible but this also isn't everything and in my speech I really talked about the importance of abolition I talked about the importance of abolishing statutory out of home care and I talked about the power of um activism but in particular I talked about how we're in this meeting room right now, we're at the Australian Human Rights event, but who's missing in this event? We're missing the children. I yeah. wanted to, There should have been children all across the front who had priority before all these corporations. We're missing community organisations. We're missing amplifying the voices of those directly impacted. And so I utilised that opportunity to be like, you know what, I'm going to accept this award, but I'm going to accept this award with a speech that says this is what needs to happen and this is what we're missing. And so having my beautiful nephew there, I wanted to let him know that it is his right to be there and not a privilege. Yeah, that was so powerful talking about the need to acknowledge First Nations people, particularly First Nations young people who weren't there at that fancy event. Mm-hmm. Um, and also the Department of Communities and Justice was there on that night. During the ceremony, they were up to win an award as well. How did that feel having reps from the department sitting in front of you as you accepted your award and was speaking that truth of the need to look at out-of-home care? It felt, I felt like they shouldn't have been there, mm. for starters. Um, but secondly, it felt really liberating to be able to say, you know what, as a survivor of this system myself, who now has the privilege to speak up and to bring other people with me to create freedom in that space, well, I'm letting you know that, what you're doing and have been doing is wrong and that's the reality about survivors of particular circumstances and their situations is we will come up and we will come back stronger and we will come back fighting and we will come back wanting to create freedom for other people are you ready to face that because I will hold you to account and I will hold your actions to account and I'll make sure that our children and young people are truly being represented at that space because I'm I'm free I'm free from that statutory out-of-home care system. I am not there. I am 24 years old. I'm in this position. I've got my law degree. I've got my social work degree. I've got my culture. I've got my ancestors and I've got my spirit. And I'm so ready to take you down. I'm ready. And a lot of people are too. So you're soon to graduate with your law and social work degree uh, with first class honours, which (laughs) is huge. Congratulations. What's next? Um, A foundation body that truly represents children and young people, a body um, that provides holistic support, that provides state-of-the-art therapy support, early intervention and prevention for families, um, and a foundation that says to these children, young people, parents that there is no stigma in here. You can come in free. 
you can come in with your struggle. We will represent you to the best that we can. We'll advocate for you for the best that we can. Um, and I want to see change. I want to I want to see change in this area because there's just not enough representation or advocacy for our children out of home care being appropriately recognised um, and appropriately advocated for. And I think, you know, there is momentum, not enough momentum building around Aboriginal deaths in custody, um, the different struggles that we are facing as First Nations people, but we're, we're missing a gap and that gap is our children. And that's why our children are going from statutory out-of-home care to the court system, the criminal justice, to a death sentence and deaths in custody. And it's super important um, that we are supporting children as young as we can, but not just children, their families and their communities. It's about strength-based approaches. It's not about going in, performing white saviour. It's actually about, no, no, you've the strengths are there. We're not the department. We will do our best to represent you. And when there is administrative errors going to the court system, we will advocate why for you. Yeah. Uh, well, we're just about out of time, but we have one last track for you to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been amazing to hear about how much you draw from your community and in particular your sisters in Finding Strength. And you brought in a track from Barker, which <laughs> really speaks to that. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Of course. Um, one of the most um, special things about Barker is she's she's the full evidence of being revolutionary. Um, and I've I've sat on panels with Barker, um, and I've had the joy of of listening to her music and, and feeling her music in particular. And her song um, "For My Titters" is something that really striked with me because it discusses who she stands for, her sisterhood. And she just really emphasizes, you know, the importance of freedom, freedom being truly for you and not necessarily um, achieving freedom through someone else being on their knees. And I think that's an important message that we all need to really hold close is that we can all have our different fights, our different struggles, our different strengths. We can all be advocating for us certain things that we want to be advocating for to achieve change in the ways that we feel we want to see it. Um, but don't do it while someone else is on their knees and don't put someone else on their knees or downgrade other people. And her song For My Titters is just something that just says I'm for it, like I'm for our sisterhood, I'm for I'm for the truth and I'm for making sure we're telling authentic storytelling. And so when I listen to that song, there's a line that she says, um, oh, I could I could get this wrong again, but it's like, and to my brothers, if you don't respect um, my titters, don't expect us to honour you. And I love that line because our men need to start respecting women. Men need to start respecting women. And there's a duty that men play in making sure that they are acknowledging their own strengths, um, acknowledging um, their own struggles and their own pains and what they've been through, but making sure that they are honouring their sisters. None of this objectifying behaviour none of this raping behaviour, none of this inappropriate conduct that's happening that we are hearing about at a political level, that we're hearing about at an interpersonal level and actually respect your tutors, respect your peers, respect your family, respect your future partner as if they are your sister and honour that and I really, really love that line. 
I love that song. Yeah, it's I a great song. Yeah. So good. Well, very soon to be law graduate and winner of the 2020 FBI Radio Smack of the Year, Vanessa Turnbull Roberts. Thanks so much for coming on the show today and being so raw and honest with telling your truth. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks so much for coming. <laughs> Uh, to close off our conversation today, this is Barker with For My Titters. Barker. Black sister, where you going? How you doing? Where you been? I ain't seen you on the scene for a couple of weeks. By all means, stay on your roll, you gotta do your thing. But please don't sell your soul for a couple of jeeps. Embrace your black skin and your race within. You're blessed by your blackness and your dark skin king. Race strong black kids, forever drugs in the bin. And you'll be bound to make your old people look at you and grin. Ha. Stand strong like your matriarchy. And did I aim higher than the stars can reach? You ain't gotta act different when it comes to me. I believe in your sister, take a walk with me. This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. 
Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts. 